Amen. Go and have a seat. And uh, good morning and welcome. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Am I not on? Okay, I am on. Sound a little quieter than normal. Doesn't happen very often. There we go. Oh, that's more of me than anyone wants. Hey, good morning. Welcome. Thank you so much uh, for being here. It's good to be back with you. And uh, nice to get away and see family, but uh, good to be here with uh, you all. And uh, go and get your Bibles out. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. I am incredibly loud, so I apologize. Uh, Aaron will work through that. We'll get it figured out here in just a second. But Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Let's all get our uh, eyes on a copy of God's Word. And uh, a lot, we have a lot of ground that we're going to cover this morning. In fact, all of Nehemiah 9 and all of Nehemiah uh, chapter 10. And so um, I repeatedly during the week just kept thinking to myself, what fool decided that it'd be a great idea to do two chapters uh, in a single Sunday? Of course, that would be myself. Um, uh, but a lot of ground to cover. But, but here's, here's the, the, the reality of this, is that we need to see both of these chapters uh, comprehensively or in totality because they play into one another. And the title of the message this morning is True Repentance. And let me just start by asking this question. So just begin to think about this amongst yourself. What is the difference, what's the distinction between confession and repentance? Because we're going to see both of those items here this morning. We're going to see both confession and both repentance as well. But see, here's the distinction Confession is stating, acknowledging, admitting that I was wrong in something. Repentance is not only confession, but a desire to change from that wrong. And in chapter 9, we see the confession, but you have to see confession tied together with repentance. They can't be separated from one another because the crux of this passage isn't simply coming to the place where we admit that there's something wrong, that we've sinned, that we've violated God's perfect standard. But it has to be coupled with a desire to change. Because, see, the gospel's no different. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus, that he died for you and I in our place to bring us back to God, it's not simply admitting or acknowledging, okay, I get that Jesus died, but it's the desire to be changed by him. That becomes the crux of the issue. And so as we think about true repentance, understand this. And of course, some of us, depending on our, our backgrounds, we may have some baggage that comes with the word confession. But you can't have repentance without having confession. But listen very carefully. You can have confession without having repentance. The shortest sermon in all of human history was uttered by a guy named Jesus, and it was all of seven, eight words, and he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't say confess, he said repent. Now, tied to that is confession. But the whole of that is wrapped up in repentance, and that's where we're going here in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10. So before we go any further, what I want to do, I want to pray. But before I pray, just know that the, the order of the service will be a little bit different. Obviously, we're going to do communion. You can uh, probably, you've probably observed that. Uh, but we're going to do that in the middle of the message. It'll be towards the back end of the message, okay? Uh, but, but when we come to the communion table, we're not done uh, with the message. So just know that uh, and have that in your mind. Uh, but why don't you join me now as we pray uh, for our time together? Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. God, we thank you for the fact that you offer us the ability to repent. God, you offer us the ability to be right with you, to, uh, to, to, to come back into relationship with you. That God, you're so gracious and kind that you don't simply forsake us or throw us out or be done with us. The moment that we fail you and we thank you for this passage in Nehemiah 9 and 10 and what a great illustration it is of that very truth. God, I pray this morning as we think about true repentance, I pray that our hearts would be soft, that, that we would be in the place where we're ready for that. God, where we would be people who are truly repentant. God, not only for Faith Church, I pray for Desert Springs, I pray for Pastor Ryan Kelly and I even think of the Claris Conference there this weekend and think of Thabiti Anabwile who's teaching for them right now. 
God, would they be a people of repentance as well? And would you be honored, not just in faith church, but in your church as a whole? And Lord Jesus, in these next few moments, we give your spirit the freedom to come and work. God, to convict and to challenge, to engage us where we need to be engaged. God, as we think about repentance and hearing in that is that we've, we've strayed or we've violated. God, would you bring us back? Would you restore us? Would your spirit have the freedom to do whatever it is that you long to do in us now? Uh, Jesus, we love you and we are committed to you and asking you to do what only you can do now. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, true repentance. Uh, four things, four things this morning. You'll notice that if you, if you look at the uh, sermon notes, very simple uh, sermon notes this morning, and that's really uh, by design, that's on purpose. Uh, but uh, four things, just four things this morning. Uh, here's the first. Look at verses 1 through 5. True repentance is guided by God's word and prayer. Right, true repentance, if we're going to have true repentance, it's guided by, it's driven by, it's facilitated by, it's motivated by God's word and prayer. And so before I even come to chapter 9, just remember by context, in chapter 8, the people finally opened up the scriptures and they were undone by that. They were absolutely undone by God's word and what happened. And so, so we come to chapter 9, keep that in, uh, in context that what had happened just a couple of weeks prior so starting in chapter 9, it says this, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And so we're only a few weeks earlier, they had, they had come to this place of opening the word and they were undone by that. Now here they, they come in, in the beginning of chapter 9 and it tells us that they're, that they're fasting. So in fact, I would suggest you to point out four things here in these first five verses. Notice, in terms of true repentance being guided by God's word and prayer, the first is that it's fasting. It's fasting. Now you have to understand that in the Old Testament, fasting was synonymous with prayer. And so when I talk about being driven by God's word and prayer, that's part of it right there is this notion of fasting. But really what it is, is it's I'm seeking God's heart. I'm seeking to get at who is God. What is he after? What's his heart for me? What's his heart for us and I don't think it's any mistake that just a couple weeks earlier that they opened up God's word right in their fasting. I just have to ask you, do you ever fast? Is that something that's a regular part of your spiritual life? I think you should probably know um, that Jesus assumed that it would be a part of your spiritual life. Because in Matthew 6, when he said, and when you fast... There's a presumption that the God of the universe makes that you're doing this. Now, I'm, I'm like probably most of you that fasting is one of those things that I struggle to do. But inevitably, it's like anything else that God tells us to do. When you do it, you find yourself on the back end going, why don't I do what God tells me to do more often? Right? There's, there's uh, a, lot, lot, lot of, a lot of weight to that. But are we fasting? Right? This hunger and this desire for God himself... They were fasting. Now notice this in verse 2. Verse 2 is really kind of a summary of, of all that takes place. And then in verse 3, he begins to get into the specifics. But verse 2, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now verse 3 begins to tell us specifically some of the ways that that, uh, that, that happened. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. Right, so here's the second thing, right? True, true repentance is guided by God's word and prayer as they're reading the word. They're letting God's word speak for itself. Now notice, I just, you know, as a, as a preacher, you got to make note of this when you see this in the scriptures, that they read from the scriptures for a quarter of the day. You want to complain about sermon length? Let's go for a quarter of the day and then I'll let you start. That's only biblical, Right? Okay, well, I promise we won't go for a quarter of the day, I don't think. But reading the word. See, there's, there's a close connection between reading God's word and the application that follows here. Namely, the two things that we see later in verses uh, 3 through 5, a confession of sin and worship. 
But in chapter 8, the word had been so significant to renewal and to revival uh, to the people. And already again in the beginning of chapter 9, we see that same thing happening. See, because when you begin to read the word, it begins to expose some things. It begins to reveal some things. You can't open up God's word and not start to see some things about who you are and who God is. You just can't do that. And that's why his word is so critically important to us to open it up, to let him speak into our lives. Now, some of you, some of you are here this morning. And if the truth were told, if you were just going to be honest with yourself and with God, where you would say, Mike, if I'm, if I'm just honest, I, I feel spiritually stale. It's flat. It's sour. Not a whole lot going on. Vibrant and thriving would not be the words that I would use to describe my spiritual state. And what I would simply ask you is, are you letting God's word speak into your life? Are you letting God speak into your wife? Are you a life? Are you, are you, well, let him speak to your wife too. That'd be a good thing. Okay. But, but are you opening up his word and letting him speak to you? Yesterday, Becky and I were at, uh, Claris, uh, the Claris Conference, and Rick Phillips was talking about John chapter 4. I want to read just two verses to you. I thought so um, applicable to this. Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, and they're having a conversation about living water, right? And she's talking about, I mean, Jesus is talking about being thirsty, and then she's talking about being thirsty. And here's what Jesus says. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about normal water. And by way of application, we could say anyone or anything not named Jesus. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Loved ones, what spring are you drinking from? What spring are you drinking from? What well are you drawing from? Because if it's not this well, inevitably you're going to get thirsty very, very quickly. All right, and they're reading the word, they're reading the word. And this reading of the word really leads us into the next couple of items, really the application that follows. Right, for a quarter of the day, they're reading the word. Then notice this uh, next in verse three, for, a, for another quarter of it, they made confession. They made confession, right? Acknowledging their sin, a, a recognition, a realization that they had sinned against God, that they had violated God's perfect and righteous standard for them. See, that's what God's word does is it brings us to the place where we begin to realize how we've, we've transgressed, we've violated what God has called us to. It's no different than what Jeremiah told the nation of Judah as he continually pleaded with them to repent, to turn before they were taken into captivity. Here's what it says in Jeremiah 3, verse 12 and 13. He says, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Here's the one condition he gives to them. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. Is that something that you do? Are you quick to acknowledge your guilt when you sin against God, which inevitably we all do? Okay, that, that's, that's not in question. But when you do, are you in the habit and the practice of quickly going back to God and being restored and made right and appealing to his grace and his mercy in you? Right? The confession and the getting right and the going back. I wonder for how many of us are we more apt to run and hide, to act as if it didn't happen, as if God doesn't see into every single part of our life. Right? They made confession and then finally this. And worship the Lord their God. Right? They worship the Lord their God. Now in verse 4, it lists a number of the Levites that stood. And here's what they said in verse 5. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. See, the people worshipped. 
The people worship. That's the natural outcome of what happens when you open up his book and you begin to let God speak into your life. Worship is going to flow from, from within. It's going to well up inside and it's going to overflow uh, to those around you. Now, now worship, okay, worship is not merely singing a song. Uh, that might be one of the forms or one of the ways that, it's, that, 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 that it shows up, but it's far from the only way that it shows up. Worship in its purest sense is simply an expression of, of thanksgiving or honor or gratitude or reverence or respect to God. And it can show up in a myriad of different ways. Right? One of the things that you might even just begin to ask yourself is, does my heart tend to, does it gravitate towards worship or away from it? And if it gravitates away from it, there's probably something that's preventing that from happening. And it's probably one of these things that we've mentioned that I'm not seeking God's heart, that I'm not getting into His Word, that I'm not right with Him. Because you can't be in that place and not move to a place of worship. True repentance is guided by God's Word and prayer. And that's the, the, the motivation, the catalyst. Now notice this secondly, starting in verse 6, and then all the way through verse 31, we see this next item, that true repentance leads to a confession of all that God has done. See, true repentance, true repentance isn't simply, hey, here's where I'm wrong. Part of repentance is acknowledging and realizing and recognizing, here's who God is. Here's why my sin is grievous. Here's why this is an issue. Here's why I have to get right. Because I come back to the place where I'm reminded of all that God is and all that God has done. And that's exactly what the Levites do here, starting in verse 6 all the way through verse 31. In fact, this is... This is a great history lesson if you don't know much about the Old Testament. Verse 6 starts with creation, and it moves us all the way through to the time of the judges. And so a great history lesson in the nation of Israel here in these next number of verses. Right, true repentance leads us to confession of all that God has done. Uh, five confessions of God that I see here in the text. This is uh, not near, certainly not exhaustive in that it's not the only things that we could uh, confess of God, nor is it prescriptive in that these are the things that we have to confess of God. But these are just observations from the text. You may want to jot these down. Here's the first in verse 6, that God is the God of creation. That we would confess that God is the God of creation, that God's the creator. Notice what they say. You are the Lord, you alone. See, here it is. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Right? It's the God of creation. You are the Lord, you alone. Now, what's the implication of God being the God who creates? Well, if God's the creator... That means he's also the one that's in charge. And if God's in charge, that means he's the authority. And if he's the authority, that says some things in terms of who you and I are not. That means that we're subjected and submitted to him. That we don't come to God as peers. We don't come to God on equal footing or equal level. But that we come submitted and subjected to him, saying, God, you are the God of the universe and we are not. It's a massive implication. The God of creation, notice this secondly, verse 7 and 8. And where, where the God of creation gets at God's supremacy, His superiority, His authority, His power, verse 7 and 8 gets at the relational element of God. Right? You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. And then the end of verse 8, you've kept your promises or your promise, for you are righteous. See, we could confess that God is the God of creation. We can also confess that God is the God of relationship. That even though God is all-knowing, all-powerful, supreme over all things, that He doesn't just hang out at a distance. He's not just far off, but He moves close to His people. In fact, He moves unbelievably close to His people. There's nothing that stands between God and His people. Right? There's nothing that would come between him and you, is there, Austin? Save our sinfulness. I'm not pointing you out on that. We're all in that one together. But see, there's nothing, there's nothing that keeps God from moving close to his people. See, one of the greatest fallacies of our day is that God is some distant old codger in the clouds who doesn't care. 
God's got more mud and blood on his hands than anyone else. Because he's in the trenches, loved ones. He's in the trenches and he moves close to his people. He's the God of relationship. He's the God of relationship. Now notice this next thing. I'm going to hang out down here because it's just fun to be close. Look at verse 9 and following. We would confess of God that he's the God who performs signs and wonders. Notice this. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Here it is right here, beginning of verse 10. And performed signs and wonders. See, God is the God who performs signs and wonders. God is the God who works miracles. God is the God who heals. God is the God who, who, who provides miraculously. God is the God who performs signs and wonders. Now notice specifically some of the signs and wonders. Verse 11, he divided the sea. Talking about the Red Sea. He cast their pursuers into the depths. Talking about the Egyptians. Verse 12. He led them with a pillar of a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. Verse 13. Okay, see, here's the relational part again. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. Verse 15. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. See, God is the God who performs signs and wonders. But here's specifically in this context. The signs and the wonders, listen very carefully, come out of a context of affliction. Come out of a context of difficulty, of struggle, of hardship. Now, don't raise your hands, but how many of you today, right now, find yourself in that place? Some type of affliction, some type of, type of struggle, some type of difficulty, some kind of hardship where you're just like, God, where are you? God's saying, I'm right here, loved one. I'm right here because I'm the God who performs signs and wonders. And I love to show up. I love to show up in the context of affliction. That's the God that we serve. All right, that's the God that we serve. Now, God of creation, God of relationship, God who performs signs and wonders... Let me just read verse 16 and 17. This just, it's unreal. Just unreal. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened, stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. Now, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes, some, okay, um, uh, let me back up. Not sometimes, pretty much all the time, it's really easy to read the Old Testament and to look at the Israelites and be like, could you be a dumber group of people? Like, how foolish could you be? How ridiculously naive could you be? How could you so easily miss all that God's doing? How could you miss it? How could you possibly lack faith? I mean, you watch him split the sea. You, he fed you with, with manna. He destroyed the Egyptians. He How could you lack faith? How could you serve false gods? How could you possibly serve a false god when you've seen the supreme god of the universe? How could you do it? And then, and then write this. like, how, how could you grumble and complain? How could you, what, what could you possibly complain about? Hands down, the most foolish people on the planet, right? Oh, wait until we have to step back and start asking the same questions of ourselves. Right? Because the reality is, we're no different from the Israelites. See, so let's, 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 let's pull back from them and let's just look into our life for a moment. And just think about your life. How could you possibly lack faith? With all that God's done and all the ways that he's moved and worked and all the ways that he's cared for you and provided for you and shown up miraculously for you. How can you lack faith? How could you possibly serve a false God? The idol of money, the idol of security, the idol of fame, the idol of whatever it is that we pursue. And yet we're quick. We are quick 
to go to those lame little golden calves in our society. This is the one, honestly, that just blows my mind. Is what in the world, okay, what in the world could you and I possibly complain or grumble about? Do you you understand, loved ones, that in our society, there has never been a group of people who has lived with both, both the exhaustive and extended nature of wealth? No one. In fact, no one even comes close. We've lived in the most prosperous place at the most prosperous time ever. And yet I think we lead the charge when it comes to grumbling and complaining. And so while it's easy for us to look at the Israelites and be like, what a bunch of knuckleheads. I think if someone wrote an account of the American church in the 20th and 21st centuries, I think the Israelites would be like, what a bunch of idiots. How could those guys miss it? (laughs) Right? For just being honest, for just being real. And so for us, right, true repentance leads to a confession of all that God has done. And such a hard, cold, calloused, Rejection. Now look at the middle of verse 17. And, and you're going to need to get a pen out or a highlighter out or both because you need to underline and highlight uh, some words here. But. 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 You are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and Merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You want to make a confession of God, you make that confession right there. God, you are a God who is ready to forgive. You're you're gracious, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake me. That's who our God is. In the midst of of, uh, presumption and hard-hearted, stiff-necked rejection of God, that's his response. That was his response, his response 3,500 years ago when it first happened. That was his response in Nehemiah's day. Loved ones, that's his response today. Today. God is a God who is ready to forgive, who is gracious and merciful, who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. In fact, notice just a number of ways in which he he didn't do this. First of all, look at verse 18. This just is unbelievable. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. And then look at what they said. I mean, could you just imagine? I can't even fathom being there. After all that they've seen, and they put together this lame little calf. And here's what they're saying. This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. I mean, it's it's a wonder that they weren't incinerated on the spot. I mean, seriously. Seriously. Because I I don't know about you, but let's just just flip it around for a second. And it's a good thing that I'm not God. And it's a good thing that you're not God. But if anyone else was sitting on the other side of that, poof, gone. (laughs) An afterthought. The nation of Israel, that's just a historical lesson. There's nothing, nothing, nothing to speak of. But see, you're not God and I'm not God. God is God and God is God who's ready to forgive. Who's gracious and merciful, right? He did not forsake them. Verse 19, right? Again, repeating about the pillars to lead them. Verse 20, he gave them a good spirit. He gave them his good spirit. Then later in verse 20, this cracks me up. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. I remember a couple of years ago, Becky and I, we have four young kids. And a couple of years ago, we were watching the movie Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. You guys familiar with that movie? It's basically a, a, a story where this grandpa is telling his kids about this magical land where the weather just rains food. And um, I, I don't know about you, but I like to eat. So that's kind of an appealing story to me. And I just thought, man, how cool would that be? How cool would that be? You walk out in the morning, it rained hamburgers last night. I read lasagna this afternoon or, you know, whatever it is. And I'm sitting there watching. I'm thinking, man, that would be so amazing if that ever happened. And then I was struck right there in that moment because it did. It did. That's exactly what God did for his people. Except he didn't do it for a day or a week and right, it didn't get crazy and they had to leave the land because the food took over. I can't remember whatever happened in that crazy movie, but he did it for 40 years. 
He did it for 40 years. And then notice this. This might be the greatest miracle of all. End of verse 21. Actually, let me start at the beginning of verse 21. 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked. Tell me, what's that next word? Nothing. They lacked nothing. Nothing. See, here it is. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. In Deuteronomy 29, it tells us that their sandals uh, never wore out. Okay, true confessions. Who in here has an article of clothing that's 40 years old? Anybody? Anybody? I had a couple of you. Liars? No, you don't. Okay, maybe a couple of you do, right? Just rags. Rags. Man, I I think 40 years in a pair of shoes. We're lucky if we can get our, our boys through a pair of shoes in 40 days. It's insane. And yet 40 years, 40 years, God's providence, 40 years of his, his loving care, 40 years of his merciful, gracious, loving kindness, care of his people. And it goes on. It talks about how he gave them kingdoms and multiplied children and that they took possession of good things. Look at this real quick. Verse 25. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things. Even the things that God gave them that were already established were good things. Cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. Making a confession about God, the God who forgives, is gracious, is merciful, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and who does not forsake. Here's the final thing. Look at verse 26 to 31. The confession of God, that we could confess that God is a God who bears with us. God is a God who bears with us. See, even in his unbelievably gracious response, they didn't get it. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. And then he goes on to describe a a process that unfolds in the book of Judges where uh, the people would sin and and God would put them in a bad place uh, and press into them or they would repent uh, because it got so bad, God would restore them and would bless them and care for them and they would uh, turn their backs on God and then they would repeat the cycle over and over and over again. Ironically enough, that's far from the only generation or generations who have struggled with that. Jump down to verse 28, just a few verses I want to highlight here real quick in terms of a God who bears. Verse 28, yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, underline that next phrase, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. But a God who bears many times, jump down to verse 30, many years you bore with them. You bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. He's a God who bears, loved ones. He's a God who bears. 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, tells us that one of the things that true, legitimate, genuine biblical love does is that it bears with one another. That's what God does for you and I. He bears with us. Now, I'm, I'm not sure about you, but I, I can't read this. I can't see this and not come to the place of being undone by what God has done for me. Being moved by all that God has done in all of his gracious and kind and compassionate care. Because truthfully, I, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but my life is verse 30 and verse 31. Many years you bore with me and warned me by your spirit through your prophets, yet I would not give ear. That's my life. It's probably your life at some level too. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, 
You do not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And the same is true with me, and it's the same is true of you. And this is why God's word, loved ones, listen very carefully. This is why his word is so important. This is why it has to drive true repentance, is it reminds us, it it repeats to us who God is and what he has done. And as as we begin to see who God is, then, then it's held in tension with who we are. And I recognize who God is, and then all of a sudden I come to recognize really who I'm not. And that's what leads us to this next thing. Verse 32 and following. True repentance leads to confession of our sin. See, true repentance leads us to the place where right, it, it, we're confessing sin. That's not the, the final destination, but that's part of the journey. Verse 32, now therefore our God, the great and the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, He talks about all the different people who have suffered. Jump down to verse 33. Here's a great summary for our entire morning right here. Verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. See, there it is. God, you're righteous. God, you've been faithful. God, I've been wicked. God, I've failed you. God, I wronged you. Right? A repentance, a confession of sin. They don't stop there. Notice verse 34. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. And he's, he's not saying, hey, it's their fault, and that's why we're here. He's saying they didn't do that, and by implication, neither have we. They begin to talk about some of the consequences and how they've lost their land and now they're subjected to another governing authority. Verse 37, its rich yield goes to the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. See, repeatedly, repeatedly, a confession of our sin and true repentance, it brings us to the place. You you can't have repentance without a confession of sin, without an acknowledgement of sin. Now just note just a few things here briefly about this confession of sin that we see in these few verses. Three things about sin that we have to understand. First of all, that sin has devastating effects on those around us. Sin has devastating effects on those around us. It's never, listen very carefully, it's never just you and God when it comes to sin. It's never that. There's always, always, always collateral damage or collateral fallout. And and, and if you don't believe me, just start in Genesis 1 and read through Revelation 22 and find hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of that. Because that's all you're going to see. It's never just you. There's always others who suffer when sin enters in. Second of all, the futility, and notice this about sin, the futility of attempting to blame sin on others. Right? They, they, they didn't do that. Nehemiah and the Levites never went there. It was never, well, our fathers or these people. Now, they mentioned some of the previous failures, but what they were saying is, you know what, by way of implication, we're no different. We're no different than they are. We're in the same place that they are. And of course... Can you really confess sin if you're trying to blame someone else? That's not really a confession, is it? Right? That's an abdication. I, I, it's not me. It's not my fault. Just ask yourself, are you willing to own your sin? Do you own your sin? Are you honest about your sin? Or are you quick to try to say, well, no, it's his fault. It's her fault. Well, if you knew my wife or if you knew my son or if you knew my mom. No, no. You. What's your sin? And finally this. A confession of sin requires an honesty and a humility of self. You can't ever come to the place where you're going to confess sin if you're not honest about yourself and there's not a humility about yourself. Just ask yourself right now. Am I willing to be honest about my shortcomings? Am I willing to be honest about my sin? Am, am I honest to just to, to, to be true and real? One of the things I despise that happens in the church is that people think 
that the church is comprised of people who have their lives together. I spend time with a lot of you. No one's got their lives together. All right? We're a mess. We're a mess. And we're broken and we're fallen and we have issues. And we're honest about that. God help us that not only would we be honest, but that the church would be a place where it's safe to be honest. People say, hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm wrestling with this. I need help with this. And the first response is, let me help you, not let me destroy you. God help us that we would be a place of grace and mercy to walk with people in that. True repentance leads to confession of our sin. Are we willing to be honest about our sin and our shortcoming? I hope so, because we're going to do that right now. Um, and we're going to move to the communion table. And so here's, here's just a couple of things to frame our time. First of all, uh, first of all, uh, at, at Faith Church, we practice what's called an open communion, which means if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're free to participate. That's, that's the only restriction that we put on communion, because we believe that's the only restriction that the scriptures place on communion. Now, I understand, right? You can't talk about a confession of sin and you can't talk about repentance without having to go back to the gospel for a moment. So let me say this. For many of you, for many of you here, uh, what we've been talking about for the last while, opening up God's word and a confession of who God is and a confession of who we are, we get that. We're very comfortable with that. And for most of you, you can look to a point in time in your life where you've turned from sin and you've embraced what Jesus Christ has done for you. You repented, but there's a very real possibility in a room this size with a number of people that are in here that someone or a number of people are sitting here having never done that, never having known that, that God, when he created you and I, he created us to be in relationship, to be with one another, but our sin separates us from God because God is a holy and righteous God and he can't be in the presence of sin. And at that point in time, God had to make a choice. He had to make a choice. And the choice was to simply walk away from us, forsake us, be done with us forever. Or a great price had to be paid to redeem us, to cover the sin, to cover the penalty, to bring you and I back into God, into relationship with God. So God chose the most painful thing of all to send his son Jesus to die in your place and in my place. And there's a very real possibility that there are people sitting in this room right now who have never turned from sin and embraced Jesus Christ as Lord. And if that's you, if that's you, then my encouragement to you would be to this very moment right now, just simply between yourself and the Lord, you just quietly say, God, I'm done. I'm done running from you. I'm done fighting you. I'm done trying to do it on my own. And I'm ready to turn from sin and embrace by faith Jesus Christ and him alone. Because there is no other way to salvation, loved ones. There's no working. There's no trying harder. There's no doing more. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. For some of you, maybe radically changing everything that you think and everything that you know right now. Others of you, maybe you've known that 10, 20, 30, 50, 70, 80 years. But see, here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It's just as relevant today as it was the day that you got saved. Because you need it just as much today as the day that you got saved. That's partly why we practice communion and we remember communion. Because you don't get saved and then have it all together and be a great person. You get saved and Jesus works in your life. And he begins to slowly change and transform us. There's not a person in this room, I promise, who doesn't desperately need the gospel. So as we come, as we come to the communion table, I want all of us to be keenly aware of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life. All that God has done, all that he has given, all that he has provided. And it starts with confession of God. Just begin to confess to God all that he is. Then to just make confession of yourself. And really where communion becomes the gateway for repentance and true change and moving out of that, not simply acknowledging that I've sinned. So uh, the, the, the center aisles will have you come forward. The, the, the side aisles, if you head back, try to do the one-way traffic thing as best we can. And we have gluten-free up here if that's a particular issue for you. Uh, so come to the communion table, grab the elements, hold on to them, and uh, we'll take them together uh, in a moment. But come.
is that we come to the cross on level ground. It's all leveled there, and that cuts both ways. Some of you who feel like you have uh, extremely grievous, difficult, hard sins, it's leveled out. But it cuts the other way, too. Those of us who would appeal to our morality, those of us who would appeal to our good deeds, those of us who would say, well, I've never done that. It's insufficient before the flawless, perfect, holy God of the universe. And it's why we so desperately, desperately, desperately need the cross. And we need Jesus to die in our place. Jesus says this, or Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, says, now as they were eating in the upper room, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink of the cup and remember Jesus' blood shed for us. Let me pray real quick, and then we'll tie up Nehemiah 9 and 10. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your incredible sacrifice and God we don't take it lightly God help us that we would not take it lightly that we would not be flippant about it but that in keeping with true repentance that we would long to be different we would long to change we would long to look more like you God help us that that would be true of us we pray this in your name Amen Here's the final thing briefly, end of Nehemiah 9, and really in all of Nehemiah 10. <clears throat> Just wrote this down. I said, true repentance leads to commission. True repentance leads to commission. Verse 37, right? You've set them over us because of our sins, the confession of sin. And you come to verse 38. Because of all this... Because of all this, because of all that God has done, because of all the ways that he's worked, because of all the ways that he's moved, because of all of our rejection of him and his incredible grace. Because of all this. See, here's the change. We make a firm covenant in writing. See, see, a covenant, a covenant was saying, God, we're going to be different we're going to change. We're not going to look the same. We're not going to be the same. Compelled by your love, compelled by your grace, compelled by your mercy. God help us. We're going to be different. See, that's repentance. That's repentance. Confession is, God, I'm sorry I did it. But not really because my heart's hard and cold. I'm just moving through some religious duty or obligation. But repentance, repentance is, God, I'm sorry. And I have to change. Not because it's some duty, not because it's some obligation. Because my heart's so gripped by the grace of God. The fact that he didn't forsake me. He didn't wipe me off the face of the earth. I'm done with you, Mike. I'm so done with you. See, it's compelled out of that love. That God didn't say that. And so they begin to write this covenant. And on all the names, uh, on the sealed document are the names of the princes, of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And beginning in chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through verse 27 is a list of all these names. And really, it's a great list. If you're thinking about having a child anytime soon, that's a great list of what not to name your child. Okay? Like, so there's a couple, I mean, Daniel's in there. I like the name Daniel. I don't want to call you up, but the rest are just weird, okay? And, and so, so the, the, this covenant, all the names, but it's not just that particular group. It's not just those leaders. Look at verse 28. The rest of the people, 
the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. See, here it is right here. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. An oath is the covenant. An oath is the commitment, the pledge. God, we're going to do this. The curse is what they themselves put on it. God, curse us if we don't do this. And to enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of our Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. And then starting in verse 30 through the end of the chapter, they begin to run through a number of items that if you were to go back and read uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, things that God had originally prescribed to the people and that they had quit doing. And what they were saying is, God, we're done. God, we're done not doing the things that you tell us to do in your word, and we're going to continue to do the things that you've told us to do. That's repentance. That's repentance. You can't have repentance without change. It's inherent in it. It literally means to turn. To repent means to turn. But it starts with a confession. It leads to commission. See, the people weren't satisfied to sit in their sin. They wanted to live lives that would be honorable and right before God because that's where repentance takes us and that's where the gospel of Jesus Christ takes us because that's really what it comes down to. The gospel, right? The gospel that God longs, God longs to be in relationship with you and I. And the moment that we violated that and God knew, God knew what it was going to cost him. And I don't think he ever hesitated. That's the gospel. That God would do that for us. But we've got to do our part. We've got to embrace that. We've got to be willing to, we've got to be compelled by that. We've got to be moved by that. Where the gospel leads us to repentance. The gospel leads us to change. The gospel leads us to commission. Are you willing to let the gospel of Jesus Christ do that in your life? Are you willing to change? Now, let me be really clear. I'm not talking about moralism. I'm not talking about duty. I'm not talking about obligation. I'm not talking about I have to. What I'm talking about is I want to. Compelled by the heart to change. True repentance. True repentance. There's freedom there. There's life there. There's security there but it requires God's word speaking into our life. It requires that we confess all that's true of God. It requires that we confess all that's true of ourselves. And it requires that in our repentance that we allow God to change us for his name's sake. Are you willing to change? Let's pray.